Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by Advamed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of Advamed. And today, we're pleased to have with us Joe Mullings, founder, chairman, and CEO of the Mullings Group, one of the world's top search firms serving the medtech industry. To give you a sense of what that means, his firm has found meaningful work and careers for more than 7,000 people across more than 600 companies in medtech, which is incredibly impressive. A serial entrepreneur, Joe is also president and CEO of Dragonfly Stories the company behind the video docu-series he hosts called True Future, as well as the founder of TNG Pulse, a medtech news and opinion website. I'm also lucky to call Joe a good friend. Joe, thanks for being with us today. All right, welcome, Joe. Great to have you on the podcast. Uh, It's great to be here on the podcast with the tables turned, finally. Yeah, it's nice to see you on the other side. I've been asked the questions a number of times. Now I'm ready to ask you the questions, right? That's right. That's so, right. You know, I, we like to think about these uh, more as conversations and not interviews, Joe. So let's just uh, jump right in. And I always like to start out with uh, having the listener get a better sense of who we're talking to. And uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and as I like to say, what makes you tick? What makes me tick? Gosh, that's a complex question, but I grew up on Long Island in a town, believe it or not, called Hicksville. I uh, did uh, all my schooling there and went out to the University of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, my dad was a, an electrical draftsman for Grumman Aerospace, and I fell in love with technology and engineering early on in. So I got uh, my degree from the University of Dayton, Ohio in 84. And spent about three years in engineering, and I loved, but I spent three years in corporate, which I didn't love. As I determined that I didn't want to be in a large corporation, I went out and started a few businesses on my own, sold those, was relatively successful, made some good money, and then uh, walked into a headhunter's office, uh, who was a friend of the family. Intention was for him to place me, and after about two hours, he said to me, do you ever think about this business? And I said, Mm. not a lot. His name was Sebastian Lavolsi. He'll always be special to me. And I said, not a lot, but what did your top sales person make last year? And he told me, I said, I'm in. And that was December 3rd, 1989. How about uh, that? I did tell Seb I was going to leave him in two years uh, to open up my own firm because I do believe in apprenticeships. Yeah. And two years and four weeks to the date, I opened up down in uh, Coral Gables, Florida in January 92. So that's how I got myself here. That's great. And and since that time, you placed thousands, what, seven, seven to 10,000 uh, people and medtech companies, I think medtech. over 600 medtech, medtech companies. Uh, right. Pretty impressive what you've uh, done with that company in and of itself. Yeah, and I'd say we're up around probably 7,500, maybe 7,800 right now in medtech and even beyond that. We had done a lot of work in the gas turbine engine uh, with Pratt Whitney and Rolls Royce, but in medtech, probably inching closer to 8,000 this year. And I'd say 80% of those are in the emerging tech marketplace, which yeah. is why, you know, I'm so, you know, I uh, have a high affinity for Advamed and those organizations. So I'd say 70, 80% are non-public or pre-public, pre-event, pre-acquisition companies that are generally pushing the envelope of technology in the health tech, med tech world. So staying on the personal for a minute, Joe, I think you're also a competitive cyclist and and maybe a little MMA in your background too, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Good memory. So yeah, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. I've loved combat sports since I was a kid. I also birthed, I don't know, I think it's six or seven UFC fighters. So uh, I 
manage their careers, train them, was the head coach, uh, Edson Barboza, Marlon Moraes, Kurt Pellegrino, Matt Wyman, uh, Hermes Franca. Uh, usually we dominated the 155, so I've been in and out of the cage over the years with those gentlemen, uh, survived, but uh, was there as a coach and really enjoyed that. And you're right, I got into uh, competitive cycling. I tend to pick one or two things to do and I go after them pretty aggressively and uh, was training in Mallorca, Spain, seven years ago, just a couple months ago. And, yeah. uh, had, uh, unbeknownst to me, I was in full congestive heart failure. You and I talked about this and, right. uh, I collapsed on a, on a competitive, uh, training session and we thought it was dehydration. They flew me back to the States and I knew a lot about congestive heart failure and heart failure because I helped build hardware and circulate. So I all know, knew about LVADs and heart failure and I was uh, sitting in the ER in uh, a hospital and I called up Dan Burkoff and those who are in the heart failure business will know Dan. He's a personal friend and full-blown heart failure. And uh, I got a nice device put in me, a Cameron ICD uh, that now Boston Sci owns. So I knew all about that device. And yeah. so, yeah, uh, diagnosed with congestive heart failure. My heart was working at one-fifth the rate it should have been working. Jeez. And uh, it allowed me to be reflective on a lot of things I was doing. I caught a virus, so it wasn't lifestyle and it wasn't genetic either. I caught yeah. a virus in Brazil about two years before and it attacked idiopathically, we believe. Uh, it attacked the heart muscle. And um, because I was a competitive cyclist, I never gave my heart a chance to rest in the off season. So I was always beating the snot out of it seven days a week. And uh, I just decided to take a break. Yeah. Well, if you've been in a hospital, obviously you have. Anyone who has been through something like that has experienced med tech, whether they know it or not, right? From the time they walk in the door until they, the time they leave and their, their entire life after that is all about med tech. And uh, I think as, as you reflect on your experience in the hospital and now coming out of it and being healthy again, it's incredible what med tech does for people who have health issues like yours. For us, and then, you know, I always think about it for the surrounding families, you know, yeah. I think the people who are able to beat through the, again, the magic of science, whether it's pharmaceutical device, biotech, to beat something or hold something off for a longer period of time is amazing. I also never forget the families and the kitchen tables that would be affected if we weren't really good at what we did in the med tech industry. Right. It's not just a job, right? In our industry. No, it's a calling. It's not just technology. It's just not creating cool things that are fun to use, right? It's uh, about creating new technologies that change and impact people's lives and lives of families. You're exactly right. Mm -hmm. and, and I think you and I have talked about that before, right? It's That's why it's so exciting to be a part of this industry as opposed to others. Not that there's anything wrong with other industries that don't do that, but the wonders of med tech and the impact it has on life, it's just so so stirring in many cases. Yeah, it, it is It is definitely stirring. And those of us that work in it intimately, like yourself and the people uh, that you and I both uh, have the privilege to work around, always have choices, right? So we, we're an industry that pays re reasonably well from an economic, you know, monetary perspective, but right. pays off much more uh, substantially from the, the karmic train delivery system. And our people always have a chance to leave the industry. And I will tell you this, Scott, is it is incredibly rare that people exit this industry when they're in it, once they're yeah. in it. It's very rare. You don't see many people make the U-turn. And uh, those who do, I watch 
scramble to try and get back into it and almost apologetically that they left. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's a good entree into the next question, which is about what type of advice you would give people who are young in the industry or looking to get into the industry. How do they do that? And mm. why do they want to stay in this industry? So let's start with the people who want to get into it. And, and I do a lot of coaching on this on the younger side of the people is for some reason, people still think, let me get into med tech and in particular med tech sales. Yeah. And, and I explained to them, I said, you know, right now might be the worst time to try to get into med tech sales because the med tech sales out of all the functional roles in the med tech industry is in flux now more than ever. Because we've got, you know, we've got the Amazoning of certain aspects of med tech happening where it's an online distribution of commodities. Uh, we've got the whole telehealth business where we've got the ability, like on an avail med system, to make a call into, you know, the 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 call point or the, the center of care. We've got the 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 flux going on in the new centers of care de uh, declaring themselves, whether it's hospital, ambulatory surgical centers other centers of care. So the sales organizations of these very large strategics right now are starting to decide wh whether they need an actual pulse or a soul in the room at that moment in time. And you've got a scramble going on because there are going to be some chairs that are going to be taken off the dance floor when the music's stopped if you're gonna yeah. you know if you're gonna play that game. Right. So to get into there is very difficult for these these young people to walk in. My guidance to them always is, here's your side door entry into the health tech, med tech industry if you want into it and you're not a technical person. Look at the pathway into clinical trials, clinical research associate, look at the med tech companies, look at the CROs. If you're smart, you're committed, if you're structured, there's always an opening for the CRA, the clinical research associate, and you will learn the technical side of the business. Mm. Most people don't even know those roles exist. Uh, you don't even have to go into a large strategic. The CROs are always looking to hire smart, young, driven people, and you will get the clinical expertise. You will get exposure to the KOLs. You'll understand the entire life cycle of a medical device, and you'll get paid reasonably well and you can live anywhere in the country for the most part to get that job. That's your entryway into yeah, medicine. Yeah. And how are people receiving that? You say people who want to get into the industry. It seems like so oftentimes people who are searching for a job are searching for a specific job in a specific area. And it's hard to get them to think sort of more broadly about just an entry point into mm -hmm. an industry. Is mm -hmm. it being received well by folks you talk to? Are people surprised by the advice? So... First of all, they said, I've never heard about that job description before. Yeah. I said, yep, that's normal. There's an insider tip for you, which means you're going to have less competition. Go do homework. Come back to me with the 10 or 15 job orders or openings you find online and let's discuss them. I said, and then yeah. the second category is be really careful on what category you walk into right now. There are areas that are sexier than others. There are other areas that are commodity driven that might be at risk in today's model five years from now. So you want to look at all those and, and giving you that as inside advice, because even people in the industry today do not know the certain markets that might be more at risk than others and others that are transitioning at such a rapid rate that the opportunities there are unbelievable. And you need to find where those soft spots or opportunities or gaps are in between. Yeah. So 
You talked about early, Joe, about the fact that you're primarily in med tech, but not exclusively over your career, right? Talk about med tech versus some of the other search areas that you do and um, what's unique about this versus others. And where do you kind of guide people if they're not interested in medical technology? So what's really cool about med tech, health tech, and you'll see me interchangeably use those words. I started that about two yeah. years ago because med tech to me is a subset of health tech. Yeah. And when I think about health tech, I think about consumer empowered passive monitoring devices that I believe, and I've said this a couple months ago, I think the FDA, Scott, eventually is going to have a category that is going to be outside of class one, class two, or class three, but will eventually understand that we're going to be able to offload some of this 18% massive spend of our GDP by putting out passive consumer uh, monitoring devices that will be empowered in the home that will allow us to aggregate information and give to somebody beside a doctor because our doctors are already booked end to end to be able to have a predictive analytics of whether you're indexing towards a potential event that we would not have known. And I do believe that the FDA and the government will eventually differentiate between you know, fake science and valid science, but not quite gone through clinical validation as we would know it today. And so I think that's an expanding market in the consumer space. I think it's going to open up opportunities for the Googles and the Apples and the Amazons who have avoided getting involved with the FDA, justifiably so, because you and I know the requirements and skills and lack of ego that needs to be in place to respectfully deal with our FDA. And so I push people towards tech, towards voice and vision, towards narrow AI, towards anything that has to do with taking in a signal from the outside, again, whether it's voice or vision, and those are both big meaningful signals as our society continues to more and more look for technology to take care of the sort of the commoditized activities that we do on a daily basis, whether it's a smart fridge, a smart TV, a smartphone, if you will, obviously. Uh, but that's where I push people towards because otherwise you're going to be pushed off into an irrelevant category if you're not at least somewhere in that STEM field. Yeah, it's interesting the way you characterize that because I often say that medical devices are a subset of medical technology. And what you're now saying is health technology is the umbrella of both of those and the future, right? Of uh, Many things that are coming that we don't fully understand and appreciate right now. And it's going to be remarkable, I think, what happens over the course of the next five or 10 years. You and I have talked about this recently. The pace of innovation and change in the last five years has been unbelievable. I'm not sure what the next five years is going to be like, but it's going to be pretty fascinating to watch. You agree? I do. I, I agree it because we're going to have an empowered consumer. You know, we're already seeing it with all the devices and the watches and some of the subsets of the technologies represent what iRhythm does and some of the other companies yeah. that you and I know, right? So those exist there. And I also believe that, you know, there's a reasonable category of consumer that does want to live a healthier, longer life, not just a longer life, but a healthier, empowered life. Right. And if you look at 23andMe, where I could take my five-year-old son and have him or her or, you know, take a test and see what they're, you know, sort of predisposed for genetically. And then I can go ahead and monitor them over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years and get way ahead of a catastrophic or even not quite catastrophic, but meaningful event that I could have 
predicted based on some very passive monitoring capabilities that exist in our life already. And yeah. so I see that happening. I think we've got to do that from an economics perspective so we don't continue to get crushed. And that you talk about the rate of you talk about the rate of acceleration. Here's the one thing that I think everybody's afraid of right now. And I don't think we're going to see this walk into health tech, med tech, and I might get, you know, some heat from even my customers on this. I don't think AI and machine learning is going to be as impactful globally as everybody's afraid of it right now. Mm. I just think there's so much work to be done. There's so many internal controls that need to be put into place. There's so many that are consciously and unconscious bias around that in regards to who de develops that technology. There's not an agreed upon language amongst even the scientists on what AI and ML mean and, and the definitions thereof. And what's really interesting, Scott, is AI and ML primarily are being pointed to the richest and already most talented clinicians in the health tech, med tech industry. They're not the ones who need the help. The ones who need the help are the marginalized populations, the rural areas and the cities, Yeah. right? To go in there and put in, you know, a $3 million robot is not the best spend of $3 million right now in regards to healthcare. So I, I think there's going to be a conscious capitalism somehow or another that's going to enter the health tech industry to reduce the cost and increase access outcomes and sort of results in regards to health tech. So I just, I just think while acceleration of technology is there, we're going to be in that same thing where everybody thought by 2020, we're going to have flying cars. I don't think that's right. going to happen for quite a while. Right, yet. right. So access is one of the hardest things to solve for, especially in a country like ours that is so big, so diverse, uh, so unique in so many different ways. The, the Congress has talked about that for many years. We have talked about that uh, for a number of years. And I'm not sure I know the answer, but it's an interesting question, Joe. How do you solve for the access issue without you know, bankrupting the country to go through that? And I don't know if you've give, given that a lot of thought, the solution to it, but it certainly is a huge problem that's gotten slightly better, right, mm -hmm. in recent years, but especially in the low-income communities, really not that much better in many cases. Right. How do we solve for that? I think about, well, you know, we're the platinum standard, the firm, TMG is the platinum standard in, in, in med tech, health tech from a recruiting perspective. You know, Scott, I think I think very, very deeply about these subjects that you and I are talking about right now because I... I'm blessed to be able to sit in front of and on the phone and on Zoom calls these days with the best thinkers in this and yeah. access. So let's look at the first, the definition of access. You know, the knee jerk reaction is access of the patient to the clinician, right? right? So that's what we mean by access. But access also starts to beg the question of what does the infrastructure development look like? I don't think our problem today is access independent of the current structure of the healthcare community because we're still working from the same infrastructure of a healthcare community as over a century ago, is an analog function as given to the clinician so he or she can see that patient in person, right? So that's one. And then the diagnostics and the disconnected analog function of our healthcare community. And so it's a piece of paper that goes in a file cabinet 99.9% .9 of the time, and it's not connected. So right. therefore, I can't aggregate all that information or have a patient be able to go anywhere in the country 
or even access it on their 4G, 3G, 5G network. Right. And so I think the answer to access starts first with what is the structure of our healthcare system? Why does it have to be a doctor all the time? I just came back from the STTS conference down in Houston mm. that Eric Wilson puts on. It's a fabulous. And the beauty of that was the intellectuals sitting around the table. And this was great. I can't say who the CEOs were, but we were sitting around a couple drinks and it was, why are we spending so much time talking about these great doctors who get on these podiums when realistically it could be the work teams that are empowered using technology that allow us to expand our reach to the patients. And so, you know, we talk about putting these great technologies in these great surgeons' hands when the work team is doing 90% of the work. Why don't we reimagine healthcare? Why does it have to be an interventional radiologist that has to do that right. procedure? Why right. can not we bring it down a couple levels of educational, you know, experience because we are now augmenting it with intelligence of some sort. And now we can start to spread that out amongst the population. So you know, it's questions like that that I think about and I think could be solved, but right now we're trying to solve access issues with a sort of siloed approach to doing so, and that's that antiquated approach. And I think there's still work to be done there. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because you uh, called this out. Access is oftentimes thought about access to a doctor, but they're not talking about access to the technologies. The doctors are important, they're critical to helping save lives, but without those technologies that they're using, they're not that effective, right? And both of those things matter. I was talking to an investor a couple days ago, Joe, who is very concerned about the current trajectory toward innovation because of the potential squeeze that's coming on new technologies and the reimbursement associated with them and causing them to pull back from thinking about how we make investment decisions, right? So you look at the biotech space, you don't ever have to really worry about that, right? If it gets cleared by the FDA, if it gets approved, it's gonna get paid for, right? You don't have to worry about that. And those companies get a lot of credit for it. But in our space, it's not always the case that an amazing technology actually gets paid for and reimbursed in the healthcare system. And it feels like, that part of access is something we have to deal with, as well as access to the doctors who provide that uh, treatment. That's right. And, you know, it's it's really unfair because the med tech device market, as you and I know it, versus the health tech and biotech market has always been treated in a different way. Even, you know, you talk about investors, you know, investors in med tech evaluate a company on its present day value and yeah. assign money to it. You take that to biotech or, or, or pharma, it's based on future value, yeah. right? And, and therefore the investments are much larger. So there's just this different, <laughs> there's a different set of rules for whatever reason around med tech and reimbursement is a critical one. And the programs that you've been involved with at Avamed and, and getting those organizations to be able to have that breakthrough technology and, and that categorization I think has been, incredibly helpful as well as, you know, EUMDRs has driven business back to our country right. and certainly the breakthrough technologies, it's driven us back into early stage investment, but we've got to figure that out because that is going to be that leading edge. While it may only serve 5% of the population right now, Scott, where, yeah. you know, syringes and, and simple tests serve 90% of the population, you've always got to be pushing that leading edge because it kicks the envelope open 
for new possibility and again solving healthcare and med tech at scale. Yeah, that's why making sure these federal programs give access to breakthrough technologies is so important, right? One from the investment standpoint, but also from a patient standpoint. Wealthy people are going to get access to technology somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's the middle income and lower income and more diverse parts of our society that don't get access to these new technologies. And those are the ones that are relying on these federal programs, which is why I continue to say you got to get it right there. And if you get it right there, the impact that has on the innovation ecosystem is tremendous. I just wish federal policymakers could get their head around that. They just need to sit in the med tech industry for, you know, a couple weeks and understand the dynamics of it because too many times they're just looking at it as a cash grab and yep. it's not a cash grab. It's yep. longitudinally supporting companies like, you know, uh, Limflow, which is a, a, one of my favorites, right? So it's limb salvage that people who are typically foot ulcers because of a diabetic ish, uh, situation and they're out in you know the lower income populations and Dan Rose and that team are like doing amazing things. And while all of us in MedTech are evangelical, there are some CEOs and, and current members of organizations that are even more evangelical than the others. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and, and you can see that's their mission because they had a chance to go to another technology, but they don't. They sit in the pocket on some of these real challenging therapies that service a a different category of access on the patient. Joe, let's, uh, that's a great conversation. We could go on for 30 minutes on this. Let's switch to uh, leadership just as a, as a general conversation, right? You, you're a leader in your own right, uh, not only in the search firm space, but as a serial entrepreneur, as I mentioned in my intro, you have two other companies that you started and run as well. So you've had an, a very interesting perspective into leadership and why that matters. As you look across our industry and you, and you think of some of the leaders that you've seen, who are the ones, you don't have to name them, but who are the leaders that kind of stand out who have done it right and are prepared for the next generation of employees to come up as well and lead them? So that leadership, you know, leadership's a really important, again, I'm, I'm all about definition of things, you know, so there there are people who are not in positions of uh, functional title and influence, but are incredible leaders. And just by their behaviors and and their understanding and empathetic perspective, but a high accountability, low maintenance mentality, right? So, you know, I think about the words vulnerability with strength. I think about the words ego with you, hum, with humility. I think about the words with empathy that gets tied to responsibility, right? And as you start to balance those words out and those behaviors that come to mind, those are some of the best leaders, right? So I have watched some of the most, I got this from somebody a couple of years ago is I, I care very little about your comfort, very little. I care everything about your personal and professional development. Those right. are the leaders that often on a Monday morning are disliked, but reflectively, as somebody goes through their career, they're like, God, I miss her, you know, yeah. or God, yeah. I miss him. Right. Because right. they created that crucible of which the crucible that allowed for safety and development, but no acceptance in compromise. Right. And so providing that crucible for people, and that's also a, a prescriptive crucible too, Scott. So they're, 
it's not the same crucible for every human being because you don't right. know what every human being is carrying with them, whether they're a single mom or they've got a sick one at home or they've got four kids or it's a diversity issue because it's a person of color or it's a female. Everybody's got their own crucible and the best leaders are able to, within reason, figure out what that person's crucible is and how do you how do you set a goal out there for them that doesn't break them, but set up enough proximal goals to them that each day they get a step closer to it and it doesn't break them, but it challenges them. And then all of a sudden they turn around and look over their shoulder a year later and they're like, who have I become? Look at this. Those yeah. are the leaders. Yeah. You, you uh, mentioned two words and I haven't heard people use it the way that you used it, but empathy with responsibility. Yes. To me, that is really the key, especially these days as we're leading forward. And I think for most leaders, that's a very difficult thing to balance, Joe, right? How do you remain empathetic with people, not only with their career goals, with their career growth, but what's going on in our world, what's going on in our life, but also instill responsibility in them that we have a job that we have to do. I think of it in terms of AdvoMed. I want to be empathetic, but I also have a job to do. We have to make the right environment for our companies to be successful. If they're not, patients are harmed by it, right? And I think in our space, balancing those two things in these days is very, very hard. And But it's also essential to being successful, at least in my opinion. Do you agree with that? I do agree with it. And I think it also is you have to define that too, Scott. And, and this is a touchy subject. By the room you're standing in, when you and I stand yeah. in rooms with these health tech, med tech leaders, there's a pretty good guess on 99% of those individuals are there for the right reason. Yeah. And so when you talk about empathy with responsibility, nobody's going to twist your words or have their own sort of narrative they're going to try and smuggle in for their own, let's call it social justice warrior for outside consumption, right? So when right. we sit in a room with people in our industry, we, we know that 99% of us are there for the right reason. But when you start to get in a room with people who have mixed agendas, having empathy, but nailing responsibility right alongside that as a must, people will try and shake one because they want to manipulate versus carry the other load. And, yeah. and as a leader, you know, that, that's what the subject's about. The best leaders will provide empathy, right? But responsibility. And that goes back to my line is I care very little about your comfort, but I care about your personal and professional development because as you develop as a human being is where your fulfillment comes from. Nobody yeah. has ever left this life fulfilled unless they've been fully challenged in their life. And the yeah. best leaders know that is if I continue to give you free reign, no pressure, three squares a day, that's what prison is. Right. A friend of mine who coaches, John Calipari, coaches at uh, University of Kentucky, told me in a conversation a while, while back, he said he tries to teach the kids at the university and on his team that they need to learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable in order to grow. And in many ways, that's true, I think, in the business world as well, right? We always want to be comfortable, but being uncomfortable sometimes is very good for us. And that's what we really need, right? Mm -hmm. And some of your best leaders, you know, are a hair away from being slightly insane. And I mean that in a respectful way, because some yeah. of the best leaders, as soon as something gets comfortable for them, they need to create an environment. And that's usually the creation of a new business or a new category or a new idea in order for them 
to be out in the wild ahead of the predictability. And that's that balance between order and chaos. And the right. best leaders are able to walk that line of order and chaos. Yeah, you said in a, in a post recently, I think it was a LinkedIn post, let your leaders lead or else your true leaders will leave and the faux leaders will remain, right? Great quote that you captured there. And uh, talk about that a little bit. It's sort of what we were talking about before, but build on it a little bit if you can. Sure, I'd be happy to. And generally, you know, Scott, I live my life out loud on LinkedIn and my writings. It's like I'm learning along the way. And again, I'm fortunate enough to be involved in these conversations with, you know, great leaders and terrible leaders. And sometimes I hang up the phone and I'm like, wow, what I just, and I'll capture it and I'll put it down. And and, and that was one of those moments where I'm watching this individual who is the helm of a company lose really good people. Right. And as we chat, I'm realizing that he's getting these incredibly talented people coming in, but after somebody sits in the pocket for 60 or 90 days, they're not getting a chance to lead. They're not getting a chance to do what they got hired to do. So what do they do? They get frustrated and they turn around and go out the door. And then what's left are the faux leaders, the make-believe leaders by title alone that then will have that company run itself right into the ground or lose its edge. And you know, you see this in small companies, you see it in large companies. And you've got to be a smart enough leader to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hire you to lead. You're not gonna get it right according to my, you know, my hallucination, but I'm gonna let you run. I'm gonna let you run. And more times than not, if you're good at selecting people, you're gonna turn around in six months and go, did they ever do a better job than I could have ever done if I had right. that to myself? And that right. takes that takes courage and that takes that also takes a level of, I would say, comfort and allowing others to be much better than you. Yeah. Well, I love your stuff on LinkedIn because it makes me think, right? And it, it challenges sometimes my traditional thinking when I see things that you write. And for those who are listening and, and don't uh, read your post, I would highly recommend it because just challenging the normal thought process is such a healthy thing, I think, for any leader frankly, in any industry, but of course, in our industry as well. I was struck by another one you wrote recently. You said it was about, I think it was, your boss said no, or let me think about it, right? Uh, To an idea that you had. And it's one that you're really passionate about. And the question to the individual was, now what? What do you do with it now? Really interesting post as well. Talk about that one. Yeah, so whenever somebody in my team comes to me with an idea, I will always listen, right? And you know, if they want to implement it, it's it's always tough because they never know exactly what's going on behind the curtain. There might be 72 other levers myself or right. other leaders are pulling right. and they're like, "Well, why can't you just let me do it?" I'm like, "Gosh, I can't give you everything and plus I don't have 2 hours to explain the dynamics of that." Right. I said, "I love it. I can't do it right now, but you know, let's revisit it in 30 or 60 days." Look, if you're really passionate about it, you're not going to let it go. That's number 1. Right. Yeah. The second thing is, is I may tell you good idea, but what about this, this, and this? And then some people walk away with their piece of paper folded in half with their head down going, oh, he just took a giant, you know, you know what, on top of my idea. I'm like, no, I'm challenging your idea to, for you to galvanize it and make it better. Right. Right. And then finally, if one conversation can extinguish your idea and your 
and the fire inside you, right. there was nothing there really ever in the first place. It was a yeah. whim. It wasn't yeah. something you absolutely driven to. So I oftentimes I'll, I'll, I'll really will test some of my people and be like, have you really thought this through? You know, right. have you really thought longitudinally about this means? Is it going to be a flavor of the month? Right. Cause otherwise it's going to get dropped in my lap. And if I'm the leader who advocated for it and you're done with it in 45 days, and I go ahead and I said, yep, we're going to do this. And then it's going to fall back in my lap. It's like the kid who wants a puppy at six years old. And three days later, I'm in the backyard cleaning up the poop out of the grass yeah. that you no longer are interested in it. Yeah. I've experienced that on a personal level, by the way. It's not, <laughs> it's not so great. So. <laughs> and you can't over, get rid of the dog. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Over time, it gets a little bit better. So anyway, let's switch to inclusion and diversity. Uh, sure. An initiative that became important to us several years ago, um, even before the George Floyd incident, but that kind of heightened the awareness of everybody, I think, across the board, not only in MedTech, but in, in every part of our society. I assume from your perspective, Joe, you've dealt with that issue too, and you've kind of seen things coming. What advice would you give companies who are trying to be a little bit more progressive in how they think about hiring and prioritizing inclusion and diversity in a way maybe they hadn't before. So uh, inclusivity and, diver and, and, and diversity has been a subject in, in this country, you know, for gosh, you know, hundreds of years appropriately. And I think it's become more serious now in regards to truly believing in the conversation than ever before. You know, separate aside from the Floyd scenario, you know, that can get a complicated conversation. It, again, it was just another iconic moment yeah. of terrible behavior by a single human. But also, again, I'm always worried about it being a judgment systemically across our fine law enforcement officers and those organizations. Yeah. So, but back into, you know, what does it mean in, in, in the employment world and then in particular in health tech, med tech, and then you can't address it without going a little deeper. Cause I tend to want to look at where is it real systemic issue? Like the, what we're seeing is the disease at the hiring level. What we need to address is how do we get the young, uh, black people of color, Latinx females into that STEM community early, right? Because without coming out of STEM, it's really hard to come into the tech side. Now, granted, you know, depending on how you carve up the numbers in health tech, med tech, you have a certain balance, but I want to get more of the boots on the ground early in the communities that need to have STEM awareness made, you know, and sometimes we're working against ourselves. You know, we're, we're trying to get those on the diversity inclusivity category. And again, it's a very broad category. I don't fall yeah. into just the two or three, you know, I, I go across the board. I, I don't go to what, you know, the federal government identifies them as is, is, you know, we're rewarding people to go in and get associate's degree and we're solving one problem. But if you get an associate's degree in the STEM program, you generally are limiting your ability to accelerate in that program because very few people are hiring people at the associate's degree with a STEM program. So that's number one. So as soon as you go into that associate's degree and, and you know, I'm going to catch some heat on this, but I'm talking about facts. You go into that associate's degree, rarely do you jump and get the BS degree and then go beyond that. Mm. So you're getting into that and you're like, great, I leveled up. I'm more than my parents were before me. I've got at least a sheepskin of some sort, but then that's only the start. Then you've got to jump and you've got to do that chasm jump into the bachelor's degree, right? 
And then once the bachelor's degree comes out and you become a candidate in the STEM program to be hired, well, now I've got, I've got tech, I've got gaming, I got health tech, I got med tech, I've got automotive, I've got so many different categories. So our med tech industry is already trying to fish in a really deficient pool of great candidates coming out of university today. So I love some of the active agendas. You know, Lobo was doing a lot to that. Jeff's doing a lot with that. Others are really doing a lot with that. I want to see us as a community spending a lot more time with the youth and laying down the seeds and giving them, you know, show me an iconic, you know, diverse individual who's a non-white male that we can look up to. I mean, the people we just spent sending into space, Bezos. Right. And yeah. right. And these are yeah. all white males. Where are the other heroes or iconic people, either females we can talk to, people of color, Latinx, whatever it is as you define, we need more heroes for these young kids to align with if we're going to get them into the sciences. That's a great point. And uh I think about it, Joe, from my own personal standpoint. My my youngest son, I have three kids, my youngest son uh is African American, Ethiopian by birth. And um if you ask him who he looks up to, right, it's primarily NBA stars. Yeah. Because that's who he sees most often. Happens to be he's a great basketball player, too, right? And so that, that uh, adds to it. But it's harder for him, I think, to identify African Americans who have been wildly successful in other areas. Not because they haven't been. They have been, right? Uh-huh. But because they're not oftentimes talked about as often as the others and seen as often as the others. And I think... It seems to me, Joe, two things. One, on the STEM side, that's going to take a while, but we have to get that right. And fundamentally, if you get that right, a few years from now, the trend is going to start being better. But immediately, right, you can talk, you can begin showcasing and talking about incredible African-American leaders that we've had throughout the course of our history that oftentimes just get overlooked for whatever reason that would really give our younger communities something to aspire to beyond just certain areas of the economy right now, right? And not, yeah. not that there's anything wrong with the other areas of the economy. That's wonderful, too. But it should be every area of the economy that they look to for leaders that look like and talk like and feel like and they can relate to more closely. You're spot on with that. It's like when you walk into a room, if you feel like you don't belong in that room, you will try and look for the side door Right. Uh, sooner than if you decided you, de- you deserve to be in that room. Right. And so I think there was a survey that came out recently that said it interviewed uh, white population and, and, and black population. And the black population thought in the STEM field that 75% of them were made to feel like they didn't belong there. And the white population thought that only 25% thought that people of color or black people shouldn't be there. And so you, you know, (laughs) yeah. How far off can you possibly be? And so if you don't feel like you belong there, you're going to look and you will find either self-fulfilling bias, or you will see the truth, or you will give up and say, no matter what I do, I'm not going to get there. And not everybody has that you know, insane spirit to stick it out. And, and those that yeah. do oftentimes will be successful. So 
there's a lot of work that's got to be done. There's got to be a lot of work from the family who's sitting around the table. They should be driving their sons and daughters into the STEM program if diversity inclusion is a category they fall in. There's that responsibility there, right? It's not all the responsibility of the system itself. And then the system has to create opportunities that are meaningful and not checking a box. Because I will tell you, I see a lot of, a lot of them, like a Latinx or a black person is like, don't make me your diversity number. Do not right. do that to me, right? right. So there, there's a lot of good intention, but there's also a lot of awareness that has to come to the table. And we said it earlier, there's gotta be real honest conversation about processes and systems we put in place that need to be evaluated on an annual basis. Because I think we put processes and systems in place and just leave them there when the dynamics of society are shifting so aggressively right now, they may in fact be an impediment to a successful outcome of diversity and inclusion being making some major headway along along the way. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it's such an important uh, conversation, and we need to continue having this uh, in order to get it right and to be be open about it and clear about it and transparent about it. And I'm I'm proud of this industry and what we're doing to address it. Right. I think the reason why it's important to me is because it, at least for our industry. It is important for two primary reasons. One, it's the right thing to do morally and ethically, but it's also the right thing to do from a business standpoint in order to be a, the best you can be in business. And when you're doing the right thing morally and ethically, and it's good for your business, that's the sweet spot, right? And that's what will make us great. And that's what our focus has been, and we hope it continues to be, to try to get this right over time. I, I wish you could fix it in a year. It's not going to be where we want it in a year, but I think if we stay committed to it over time, it will be right. And then the issue is no longer going to be a question, right? It just is what it is, right? And the, and the balance is going to be better. And and I do think there, there are organizations, Scott, that are tied to a quality of opportunity. And then there's organizations that are tied to a quality of outcomes. And I think the second right. is a dangerous one, right? Right. Because we live in a world or actually the U.S. does, right? So let's call it the U.S. Or, or most Western civilizations that are capitalistic driven are built on hierarchies of competency. And look, you don't want to go to a brain surgeon if you need brain surgery because they were put in place because inequality of an outcome, right? You want the highest level of competency rising to the highest level, not right. get awarded to it. Yeah. So there's a really interesting balance to look at here. And this is where I come back to, we've got to get down to the community level, down to the kitchen table level, down to the kindergarten level of, I need to give you an equality of opportunity. I'm not going to promise you an outcome and I'm not going to put a checkbox for you as a person to fill my quota because you don't even want that, right? A lot, I get that a lot with the female leaders I deal with. We, I've just finished four female CEOs. And if you want to piss off a female more than anything else in a search, you tell them that they want the female, they want the CEO to be female. Right. I can tell you those female CEOs get so pissed at that. They're like, no, why don't we just get the best CEO who happens to be a female? Right. And so I think there still needs to be some language around clarity and honesty around all of these subjects because you get a larger cohort of support if people get it right on equality of opportunity because that allows us, Scott, to go, again, way down range to kindergarten versus 
a quality of outcome I can solve today, but from a competency hierarchy, nobody's going to get served because then we're going to have people in areas that they're going to fail and then they're going to screw the next generation because they were put in that place for an equality of outcome. Yeah. And that's a very dynamic equation to have to wrestle with, but we have to. We have yeah. to try and satiate it today, but we have to understand the real goal is the equality of opportunity. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. So let, let's wrap up. I want to just talk about uh, COVID for a minute, if you have a couple more minutes, Joe. And not not to revisit the history of, of COVID necessarily, but from a workplace standpoint, I think and I think you have a unique perspective into this, given where you sit, the, the three companies you run and the search that you do as well. It feels like uh, COVID has changed maybe permanently what almost every office building is going to look like going forward and what the work in place, workplace environment is going to look like going forward. And then how we recruit and retain employees as a result of it as well, right? That's a lot to unpack with one question, but can you give us your perspective on what you think the next five years of the future looks like in the workplace for medtech companies, and how does that impact how we think about our policies and how we recruit and retain employees? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're exactly right. You know, the, the pandemic that we just came out of was a catalyst that accelerated some subtle changes that were already happening in the workplace. But what it did do was the WFX, the work from anywhere environment, clearly has become a category of employment that is not going to go away. I have seen, and I will not say the companies, I will tell you, and they're people that you know closely, that those leaders would never allow somebody not to be in the four walls of their organization as an employee. They had to be in there. And now I just, we just put two people in the organization that they're allowed. And you and I know the guy I'm talking about would never, ever, ever. And then I'm seeing the broad-minded thinking opening and, and I'm happy for the industry. I'm super happy. I'm, and, and it's also, Scott, realigned the axis of power. The individual is more powerful today than the company. They are calling the shots. They're yeah. calling higher salaries. They're saying, oh, you're one of those companies. We talked about a LinkedIn post. I had one the other day. We had a candidate on the phone. She's a high flyer. We said, yeah, but you got to be in XYZ city. And her answer was, oh, they're one of those companies. Mm. And so I think that I do know that executive leadership, human resources are going to have the most, and, and legal are going to have some of the most challenging times ahead of them for the next five years. So how do I say I'm on vacation or not vacation when I'm in a WFX? You can't yeah. get mad at me. I'm, I'm calling you from the Bahamas on a beach chair, right? right. And then how about the individual in-house? right? Who is there all the time? Right. What if they want to run out and get their prescription at Walgreens for an hour and a half on lunch, right? And they don't get dinged or get the, you know, the big hairy eyeball when they walk in and their boss sees them walk in. Right. So that's one. Two is the disparity in salaries and locations where you live. If I'm in the Bay Area and I work for a Bay Area company, I'm going to need a salary of 180000 just to break even as a single person. Yeah. But I can be in Des Moines, Iowa, and are you going to pay me less when I'm giving you the same skills just because I'm these dynamics are going to throw salary structure, salary parity bands in a frenzy. And mm. then it's going to start to have different categories of workers. And anytime you have categories, you have us and them. 
And so that internal leadership, that internal management, leaders are going to be challenged, boy. We're seeing it already at the leading edge. Apple's going through it. Google's going through it, especially on the tech giants. Is right now there's a major pushback on where bonuses are being paid out, what percentage you're going to bonus or you're going to get if you're in-house or out-of-house. And those are usually canaries in the coal mine as to behaviors in the rest of the industries. So I think it's fantastic for the health tech, med tech industry. I do believe, though, that our leaders who are 50, 60, and 70 years old are going to have a real challenge based on their entire core belief system. You're going to have you know, the 20, 30, 35, 40-year-olds maybe more dynamic or less dynamic about it. So it is going to be a leadership challenge for sure. I worry less about what it means for real estate, brick and mortar. I worry right. more about the conflict that's going to be the distraction in-house from us developing our life-saving devices. Yeah. And those leaders who get it right are probably the leaders who are most likely to be successful and the companies that are most likely to be successful. So Scott, you're going to see a breakaway. You're going to yeah. see breakaways because of that exact point you brought out, yeah. my friends. You're yeah. going to see organizations just break away because what happens then is you get a flywheel of talent who are going to say, wait a minute, ABC company has that sort of environment. Now you're able to recruit from around the globe, around a region, around a state. And once that word gets out that you're like that, believe me, that company will have enough intellectual power and eventually financial resources to become a world beater. And you're exactly yeah. right on that, Scott. Yeah, yeah. That's the future. That's another conversation, Joe. I think it's our next conversation. We really ought to come back to that, right, in six months Oh yeah. Um, and see how we're doing or a year and see how we're doing because we've all learned a lot through COVID. Much of it we didn't want to learn, but all of it was important to learn going forward. And those who are successful will have learned the lessons best, right? And, and be prepared for it going forward. So Joe, thank you for taking time to be on here with us. It was uh, not only informative, but for me, just a lot of fun to have a conversation with you. And uh, hopefully we'll get together in person sometime soon and, and continue the conversation. So thanks for taking time to be with us today. We appreciate it. Always appreciate our friendship and I appreciate all the work you do for the industry. Thank you, Joe. Have a great yeah. day. Bye-bye. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Have a great day.